0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today has been a long time in the making. I started this podcast with a rant about how we shouldn't use roadmaps. I did a second episode on what it looks like to operate without a roadmap. And finally, today I have one of the experts, Jana Basto, the co founder and CEO of Prodpad, on the show to talk about how to plan effectively as a PM, how to free ourselves forever from the tyranny of the time based roadmap. This episode is about how to plan, how to communicate that plan for all of us in product that know that doing a time-based feature roadmap is the worst trap of all. I hope you enjoy it. Dana, welcome to the show. Wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. I am so excited for this conversation, mostly because I've been notoriously on team roadmaps are bad. But as the company that I'm at is scaling and growing and our coordination costs are growing, and I think when a team is growing and you're trying to create a coordinated and coherent and high-quality product, you have to do some kind of planning and communication around what you're doing, which is why I wanted to talk to you about roadmaps to see if there's a way to solve the problem without falling into, as we talked about before, the sort of feature-focused, time-based Gantt chart hell of a traditional roadmap. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think where I would love to start is on your journey to this better land that we're going to talk about because from our conversation before, you didn't sort of start out the gate with having a perfect roadmap. You started with the time-based thing that we all kind of hate, right? Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been on a whole journey with roadmaps myself. When I started off as a product manager, probably about 15 years ago, I didn't have formal training. I didn't know what I was doing. And one of the first things I did, I I got back to my desk and looked up what is a product manager and what do we do? And came across this artifact called a roadmap. And even today, if you look up what a roadmap is on Google image search results, it's mostly a list of timelines. so mostly a list of Gantt charts uh, with nice colors. And so that's what I had the impression I was supposed to do. And it was reinforced by the fact that whenever I made one of those, my boss and my team would give me a pat on the head and tell me to go deliver. And so that's what I would do. I would make this roadmap. I would take a list of all the things people wanted to see done in the product. I would map it all out on this nice little timeline. And I would make my best attempt at delivery. Now, the reality is is that I was never able to fully deliver on one of these roadmaps. And I thought that was my fault because I was a young product manager, like many product managers, particularly like a decade ago. I was working alone in teams. I didn't have a network of people around me to check this with. And so I didn't really know what I was doing wrong. I just thought I sucked at delivery and that roadmaps are fine. It's just that if I just sped up delivery and I just figured out how to actually deliver on a roadmap, it would be fine. It wasn't until several years later that I actually started playing around with the idea of making it easier to make that roadmap because I was constantly making these roadmaps in more and more detailed tools, right? My first versions were made in scrappy Excel or PowerPoints. And eventually I had this powerhouse of an Excel spreadsheet that I could drop anything into and stretch it out and do lots and lots with it. And I'd taken that and I'd shared it with other product people and that was gaining popularity. And it wasn't until I actually digitized it, I turned it into this digital version made out of jQuery and a whole bunch of duct tape and shared that with product people. And that was actually the first version of ProdPad, one of the very, very early versions of ProdPad before it was really anything we commercialized. And I shared that with people. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And what actually happened there was at first, people loved it, right? People loved being able to make this colorful roadmap that you could drag and drop your ideas on and stretch them out and shrink them (laughs) down and show where on the timeline things were going to happen.
0: Sorry, I was going to say it feels so like concrete when you can do that. I think so much of the product role is kind of ambiguous. So it's like, well, at least I can make this artifact.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think it's also something that people see as the output of the product manager. It's like how you know the product manager is product managing. They have a, they have a roadmap and it says you're going to do things, right? Like, good job, pat on the head, now go do the things, right? I think it takes a lot Of experience and guts to sort of turn around and say, well, no, that's not what we do. That's not how the job actually works. There's a lot of ambiguity and discovery and a lot of unknowns, which is why we can't tell you what's going to be on the roadmap, which a much more experienced product manager would tell you. But I wasn't an experienced product manager. I was just making what felt good and solved the immediate problem, right? It was the immediate painkiller sort of thing, but didn't solve the underlying problem. And so what actually happened was quite hilarious because after about a month or so, about four or six weeks in, all these early beta testers, beta users of this first version of Progpad started coming back to me and saying, this is great, but what I'd really love, what would make this better is if I could pick up all the items from like this area here and just move them over a bit, right? And what what, what had happened is that everyone had missed their their deadlines that month, right? Everything had shuffled or things had happened, right? It was just, you know, things happen. You know, had I just listened to my customers, I would have picked up like some sort of like multi-select, drag and drop, quick way to update your roadmap, and so be it, right? And we just have this roadmap that would automatically move along and stretch itself out as time progresses, because that's what roadmaps seem to do. They never actually seem to be done. They just seem to infinitely stretch into the future and just add buffer as you go. What we started to do, though, was ask the five whys. We started really drilling down into what was happening there. And the reality is, is that no one was delivering on the roadmap. I thought it was just me, but turns out no one is. (laughs) I love it. It's so like life affirming because I think we've all, <laughs> even
0: if it's just like you don't have a whole roadmap, but you're working on a project and you're like, yeah, it's definitely going to deliver this quarter. And then you go to your boss and you're like, it's definitely next quarter for sure, for
1: sure. And it just yeah. goes on forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life affirming, but also soul crushing because I'd spent months like learning jQuery and making a hash job of this thing to make it all this draggy, droppy, stretchy, pulley thing, and it it wasn't even the right product. And so it took a lot of guts to realize that we'd built something that actually made people's lives worse. It was, it was setting teams up for failure. So myself and my co-founder had to take the step back and think about what are we actually doing here? What are we building? If not a helpful roadmap, what is a roadmap if this isn't it? And we sat down at, at this point in time, we were working from our bedrooms in London. And so we got together in a cafe that was about equidistant between our houses somewhere in South London and scrapped out on a napkin which i really wish we'd kept yeah <laughs> scrapped out on this napkin this idea of a three column roadmap and simon labeled them current near term future and said well what if we sort of looked at it in terms of less about this timeline at the top but more of buckets of uncertainty and he used that term of uncertainty where you know the further out it got the less certain it became and then you put maybe not features in there, not necessarily ideas, but just things that we were doing. We didn't have the vocabulary for it, but these sort of became the initiatives or the problems. And we took this back to our desks and threw out the code Months and months of code that we'd been doing, and created a much simpler version of it, which was quite literally just three columns with some text boxes in it that you could fill in. And at first, you couldn't even attach your ideas, you couldn't really do anything with it. Frankly, it was no better than a Trello board. You could create the same thing in Trello. But what we really asked ourselves was can we still call this a roadmap? I mean, can we throw out this thing that we've made, this draggy pulley timeline roadmap thing, throw that out and just replace it with this three column thing? and give this to our beta users and see how it works. Can we still call it a roadmap? Is it still a roadmap? We weren't really sure, but we decided that it was worth a try. Let's see what we put out there and dropped it out there. And turns out people loved it. People loved having this ability to still plan for understanding what kind of questions they were asking, Still understanding what was on the horizon, but without necessarily being tied down to making some promise about when things were going to be done. So they were putting things in the order that they wanted to tackle problems in. They were understanding that level of granularity, but they weren't going into the, oh, well, this is going to be done in Q4. Like you don't even know how big your team's going to be in Q4, let alone how fast you're able to deliver. So it took away that uncertainty. But because we called it a roadmap, and because it looked like this legit tool that was a roadmapping tool, it gave product managers permission to change the way they roadmapped. So all of a sudden people are like, yeah, I roadmap. Look at my roadmap. It's now, next, later, current, near-term, future. We made the labels renameable after a while. And we started seeing people renaming them to now, next, later. And we eventually changed our own defaults to that as well because it it just was that much catchier. (laughs) And that's how the uh, the timeline roadmap ended up evolving to that now, next, later format. Perfect. Okay, so I have infinity
0: questions, but I think the first one that I want to kind of cover is especially in my own life, there's this aspect of the only stakeholder I had was the product team and the engineering team and design team. I think that would be totally fine. And I would have the ownership to kind of make that choice. But there's also stakeholders in sales and marketing who especially marketing, for example, you know, is trying to plan their launches, they want to have a certain number of big things they can go to market with. How do you reconcile, like not being able to say when something will be done with a team that's trying to find things to market?
1: Yeah, yeah, such a good question. And it's so common. And it also depends on what kind of stakeholders are asking for those deadlines and dates as well. So for example, the, the marketing team, The big thing that you can be doing to help your marketing team, and this actually becomes a benefit for both, is to separate your hard launch from your soft launch. Because there's nothing worse and there's nothing riskier than trying to line up an expensive marketing campaign, right? Planning out your marketing expenditure, wasting people's time on building out all these assets, which may or may not be used on the day that the thing actually launches. Because the reality is, is that building products is an unknown, right? You do not know how long it's going to take. You can estimate it, but the reality is is that you don't actually know. And so you're actually safer just saying, you know what, we're going to build this and it'll take however long it takes. At the day that we think it's ready, that's the day that we're going to soft launch it. We'll put it behind a feature flag. We'll make it available to some beta customers. We'll have it available so that we can demo it internally. And now we have it. We have this thing that we can turn on whenever. Now, if marketing wants to then take that and they need, let's say, six days to plan a marketing campaign, great, they can launch in six days' time. If they need six weeks, great, they can spend six weeks planning all the bus ads in the world and doing the whole thing. If they need six months, cool, whatever they're doing in that six months, they've got all the time in the world. Plus, they then have all the materials they need, right? They know exactly what it's going to look like, they're not depending on it looking exactly like what the original designs did because things change in in production, right? By the time it gets live, they're like, wait, how does it look like this? You changed it along the way? We're like, yeah, it does that. (laughs) They can get videos of customers using it. They can get real testimonials. They've got the whole thing right in front of them and they don't have to worry about whether it's going to be live or not by that day because it literally already exists. They're marketing what they already have.
0: Right, and I think one thing that, that we've done on that point is... Let's say you get to the point where you're working out ahead and maybe you don't want the market to know about what you're doing until you do that big marketing launch. You can always have it with a small group of early access partners or something like that that's using it for that long.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, feature flagging, beta groups, that sort of thing is all your friend. We have domains that between staging and actual live where features will sit. It might be just be for a couple of days while we test something out. It might be for a few weeks, depending on what the risk is and how much we want to put into marketing it. Same thing goes for sales, for example. One of the big tensions is sales who is constantly selling stuff that you don't have, And again, they shouldn't be selling things that don't actually exist on the roadmap. They should be selling the product that you have and focusing on that. If they aren't able to sell the product that you have, then either your product isn't good enough and you shouldn't have a sales team yet, (laughs) or you should be redeploying them to help you understand what problems you could solve in the future. Redeploy them as researchers in a way, but certainly not out there selling things saying, oh, well, you have to build feature X because it's going to get us this client. And I've told them it's going to be done in six weeks time. So that's your roadmap now. In those cases, you're not a product manager anymore. You're a project manager and you've got to be building like a project team in an agency at that stage, not like a product team. You're not going to be scaling in the right way.
0: Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that there's a definitely when you're selling to enterprise companies, there's a narrative of, I want to be able to sell what the product is going to be at the time this deal closes because the sales cycles can be longer. And they kind of want to know what's coming because the enterprise companies also want to know, especially if you're a startup, they want to know, okay, like, what's the vision? Where are you guys going? What am I going to get from partnering with you? Which I think has some interesting implications for how you talk about what you're going to do and the balance between saying like, this is exactly what we're going to be building versus these are the types of problems we want to solve next.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's always such an interesting dynamic intention that gets created when you start walking into situations like that, because what's essentially happening is the company is walking this fine line between being a product company and an agency. Now, there's nothing wrong with being an agency. It's a totally noble way to make money. But what's actually happening there is that you're selling your time for money and you only ever scale based on the time that you sell for that money. You only ever scale by adding more people to those projects. Product companies scale by building for the wider good, right? They build for the greater good and attract more and more users. And that's how they're able to get those hockey stick type growth things, right? Agencies don't change the world, product companies do. And that's why so many companies are aiming to be product companies. Now there is a balance that can be struck in some companies where they're able to build something that attracts the enterprise user, or even gets the enterprise user to bankroll something and delivers it on time, and then is able to sell that for other companies. But that takes either immense planning, as in you have to put in the footwork to plan that you've actually got the right thing, and that's project management that you're doing there. Um, And you better be able to price it properly. You can't price that like a usual product feature. You better. that as if it's your agency wing and you are spending that time like an agency because you are selling your time and that time cannot be spent doing something else like solving problems for the greater good. So if you're selling off your time to do that, then acknowledge you're doing that. But the strategic piece is that you're building it for other enterprises. The problem comes is when companies run into this whole thing of trying to build that one feature in hopes of getting that one client and they spend all their time chasing it and then they don't close it or it's not quite right or it's only good for that one client, but they spent all their year building it and it wasn't actually reusable for anybody else. And they're acting like an agency, but charging like a product company and it's just not sustainable. It's not a not a viable business.
0: Yeah. I love that point about agencies and thinking about what you're doing and who it's for. I think that's such a good framing of it. Okay. So what I, I kind of want to take a step back and focus back on like the roadmap done Right. So you had said something in an article that you'd written about roadmaps being prototypes. So I want to hear a little bit more about this idea of a roadmap as a prototype of a strategy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I find with roadmaps is that they've got a whole lot of pressure behind them. People see them as these plans that you put out there. And once you've made them, you can't change it. You've just got to go deliver on it. And I don't want to throw away that concept. I want to reframe them. I like to think of roadmaps as being more of a prototype. It's a way of testing out your strategy and checking your assumptions as to whether you're on the right path or not. So think of it this way if you were building some new feature for your app, right, adding a button somewhere, changing a checkout flow, you wouldn't go straight to development with this perfectly finished mock-up that you'd created or perfectly finished design that you created and just tell them to crack on with it, you would start with some really, really simple sketch drawings, maybe a, a sketch or Marvel wireframe, or maybe even just a napkin drawing. And you take that and you'd show it to somebody on your team or to a customer or to whoever else just to get their their feedback on it. The customer would come back to you and say, hey, yeah, it's, it's all right, but I don't get why the button's like this, or why does it say that, or that's a bit junk. That's okay. You'd throw out that napkin and you'd start again with another piece of paper and it'd be slightly higher depth. And it'd be slightly better, and it would take in the learning from whatever conversation you'd have, you get a slightly better version. And the value isn't in the prototype itself. That gets thrown out time and time again. The value is in the process of prototyping, the conversations that you're having. Likewise, the value in road mapping isn't the roadmap that you create. The value is in the roadmapping process, just the act of roadmapping itself allows you to lay out your assumptions of what your strategy is, and allows you to course correct long before you start making mistakes about where to invest your money, right? So a simple, simple roadmap. You just wanted to start today with three columns and some post-it notes. You're just starting at a new company. Don't try to get like some really, really high def version of a roadmap. Start with a few post-it notes and just say, okay, based on everything I've learned, here's problem one here's an opportunity two, here's challenge three, here's problem four, just write these all out and then stick them down in order that you think they should be tackled and then show that to somebody. And you're gonna be wrong, right? Somebody's gonna come out and say, no, I can't believe you think problem one comes before challenge two or whatever, right? And you'd flip them around, you've learned. And then somebody else would say, no, you've forgotten this or no, that's not important anymore or whatever else. You get all this feedback from important stakeholders around you and it would inform what your strategy should be. At the end of the day, after lots and lots of iterations, lots of feedback, lots of open conversation around the roadmap, your company would have a much more robust, informed strategy as opposed to a strategy that is either sometimes missing and not communicated or is sometimes just based on the order of features that people have asked for, which is often how companies are driven It's driven by you know a vacuum rather than deliberately asking and checking and understanding what the strategy might be. So the roadmap is a great tool for that.
0: Yeah, I love that idea. And I, it's reminding me of something that Marty Kagan was talking about, and I think in one of his articles about empowered product teams and product strategy and how a reason why you end up in one of those situations where you're talking about features in this context is because there's not enough trust or understanding between the people you're communicating with. So people go back to saying, well, just ship this thing versus being able to create a tool like you're saying that would help you see if you could translate the strategy into the set of problems you're going to solve and check that with those people to build that trust. I think there's definitely something in there that this process you're talking about of kind of going back and forth about, okay, well, here's our strategy. Here's what that would look like in terms of the problems I would solve. Is this right? Or like, what would you say to this might help bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's a really good point how often
0: should people be updating their roadmaps? Like who does the updating? And I guess part of what I'm getting at is like, it just feels like so much work. And I don't always know that it's worth it when I go through one of these exercises. That's probably been because I've been doing them in the wrong way. But I'm just curious from you kind of what your expectation is in terms of how often it gets updated, how much work it takes to keep it updated and and who does that work?
1: Mm, yeah. It shouldn't feel like a lot of work to keep your roadmap up to date. It should be something that the product manager has their eyes on on a semi-regular basis, but not necessarily a daily basis. It should be updated whenever there's changes to the market or any new big insights coming through. A roadmap itself can be linked to experiments and things that are going on in the company itself. And so if you got those set up, then you might see the roadmap itself reflecting through different changes that are happening in the background, almost as like a Uh, a way of showing the status of stuff, but the core problems on the roadmap itself should be changed based on the insights that you and your team are having. Typically, very early, if you're just trying to figure out your company strategy, then that's gonna be changing on a regular basis. Each time you have a conversation going, is this the right track? Or is there something we need to talk about here? And you reorder things or, ooh, this has just happened. This is a new opportunity. Should we take advantage of it, move this to here and this to here? whenever you move one of the problems off the roadmap saying, okay, we think we've solved this. Let's put this over to this part over here so we can validate it. And I'm a strong believer in a validation roadmap off to to one side. Should we now reorder the things on the roadmap? Is this still the next most important problem we should be working on? And should we still have eyes on these next problems coming up? So it should be a natural part of the type of thing that a product manager is working on and has their eyes on, but shouldn't shouldn't be a heavy piece of the role in any way.
0: Okay, so the thing that I love is not only have you gone through this process yourself, but you run roadmap clinics. And so my assumption is that you've seen so many examples of how teams have made every mistake possible. So I'm curious, like, what are, when you're looking at someone's roadmap, what are the things that you look for? And what are the first, most obvious traps that people are falling into?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've seen a lot of different roadmaps out there. One of my uh, favorites is, um, remember I told you about that template that I created years ago, and I, I shared, I wrote this article about it and said, here's a roadmap template that you can use. It's Excel, you know, it does this draggy droppy thing that you can do, and it's all this beautiful timeline. I occasionally see people taking that template and sharing it back to me saying, this is my roadmap, and I have to tell them that I've since disowned that format, and here's why I think it's a terrible idea. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well I think even when we were when we were talking before recording I was admitting that I had just gone through a timeline based exercise and was feeling very unsettled about my own life so I can empathize with making the wrong choice even when you know better.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the thing is is that I don't blame people for using those formats because if you look up what a roadmap is that's what you get. You know, a lot of the roadmapping tools out there I think are doing a disservice by offering up that format as well if you're not experienced and you just sort of look up what is a product roadmap, which is what I did when I was starting off on this, it was, all that the, was offered, right? It's, it's all I knew. And so people sort of go ahead going, oh, surely this is the right way of doing it. And what I also love seeing are the, all the different interpretations of it. You know, so people trying to work around different ways of expressing the roadmap, which is amazing because there are lots of different ways of doing roadmaps that have timelines, have, don't have timelines, that are ways of expressing problems that you want to tackle and checking those. So roadmap can actually take a lot of different formats. The now, next, later is just one of those ways of doing it. What I've actually started realizing is that the roadmap itself can be a diagnostic tool for the state of the company. So basically, show me your roadmap, and I can start pointing out what might be wrong inside the company itself.
0: <laughs> so how do like those dysfunctions show up? Like, What's an example of one of the common things that's going on in a company that you would see through a roadmap?
1: Yeah. Okay. So an example might be if you take a look at uh, the content of that roadmap, if you're starting to see everything being written as a bunch of features or solutions, very granular, as opposed to problems to be solved, it's telling me that there's probably a lack of autonomy in the company, that people don't really have a choice as to what it is that they're going to be building. It's just that they've got a list of features and here, just go build it. It's this thing to go do. Most often that list of features is lined up against this timeline, but not always. Ideally, a roadmap should be a list of problems to solve and attached to that are potential ways that you might solve that. So prioritize at the problem level and not at the idea or solution level, as opposed to the individual feature level. So that one sort of indicates is lack of autonomy for teams. Another one might be oftentimes just a missing roadmap. People saying, I don't have a roadmap, we don't believe in it, or sometimes don't have a vision, or sometimes not being able to see anything being tied back to company level objectives, as in the things that are on the roadmap don't really seem to have a purpose. It seems to indicate that there's a lack of alignment, right? So the team is doing stuff, and at the end of the day, they've done stuff, but Have they done stuff that was aligned with each other? Are they all pointing in the right direction? Are they all pointing in the same direction even? And they might have a beautiful process behind building things and they're churning things out. They're they're getting things done, but it's not necessarily the right things. It's not necessarily solving the right sorts of problems. So that sort of indicates a lack of alignment.
0: We had once an example, I was having a discussion with a person I work with the other day and we were talking about team names and the size of a team we were talking about is sort of a, we have three person engineering teams that work with one product manager and one product designer. that's kind of like the like atomic unit of our teams. And we were talking about the team name and how kind of like you were talking about, like if you have a team name that sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy on the type of work that they're going to do. So they're going to like continue to work on that thing that their team is named after. But at some point, that might not have a connection to this broader strategy or mission or whatever. And so you have to be careful about like even how you talk about what the team is there for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That kind of reminds me of Conway's Law. Are you familiar with that one? I am not. So Conway's Law states that basically organizations' output mirrors how they're actually organized.
0: Okay, I know I know the concept. I didn't know it had a name.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I also sort of ask about where the roadmap is coming from, because sometimes roadmaps are just given to you. You join a new job as a product manager. It's very rare that as a product manager, you start off in this greenfield space where you just get to create from brand new. More often than not, you've adopted some product and it's already got tech debt and constraints and customers and political stuff that's happening in the, in the office and all these sorts of things. And it comes with a roadmap. And you've just been told like, okay, here's the roadmap, go. And I always try to ask like where the roadmap has come from and who makes the calls on the roadmap? Like who decided this goes in here? Where is it actually coming from? Why is this piece in here? And you start to see that's where there's a little bit of shaking going, well, this is here because sales absolutely says that we have to do it this way. We can't tell them no, because otherwise, you know, you feel the tension or, you know, the boss says we have to do it this way, or we promised investors that something would happen and we can't possibly question that. And that indicates to me a lack of psychological safety in the company, which is sometimes harder to Diagnose from a first glance at a roadmap, but you can start picking apart you can start picking clues from it by understanding where the roadmap itself is actually coming from
0: yeah, interesting. I'm curious also when you're doing a clinic like this and may, and maybe let's say someone has sort of the old school feature waterfall roadmap, what are the blockers that those teams run into when I'm assuming like a, a pm would listen to this and say yes, like I want to do it that way but the reality of their company kind of hits at that point. So like, what are the blockers that you see teams have when they want to switch to this model, but they have trouble doing it?
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Whenever I talk to individuals, they get it. They totally understand this idea of having a lean roadmap where you're not committing more than what you need to in the short term so that you can iterate and adapt and do the best you can with the resources you have. It falls apart at the company level Organizations are just not set up structurally for this. And you actually start seeing companies on this almost continuum of whether they're nimble and lean and risk-taking or whether they're this slow-moving, risk-averse type company. You start seeing companies who are, let's take some financial institution or government or some publicly funded company, that sort of thing. That sort of stage, they've got this fiduciary duty to their shareholders to increase shareholder value. And for them, it's really important that they get steady up into the right growth, right? They've just got to have the steady up into the right growth. I mean, if they don't, then the CEO might get turfed, right? No one's getting their Christmas bonuses. Everyone loses their job if they take risks, and so they're they're designed to not take risks. And so they learn to break up the company into manageable chunks, which is what gets you silos, right? You get the sales and marketing team over on one side. You get product and R and D and dev and ops and other stuff in other in each of their own little areas. And each team has various vanity metrics that they work towards, but none of which oftentimes these vanity metrics actually work against each other. And there's no room in there for companies to say, or for each division to say, well, actually, we think it's actually worth taking a risk here. So it's worth actually investing in, this new model of deploying to our customers because we think it's going to give us a better the future. So some companies are just literally not set up for anything other than that slow, steady growth. And the thing is, is that the timeline model of building things has been set up to cater towards those old vanity metrics, right? So the tech division, which historically wrapped up product as well, because we've always reported to the CTO, was set up in a way that we were we're meant to optimize towards how many story points we could get out the door what our velocity was what our burn down was right these are all things that are optimized towards getting features out the door but everyone knows that the number of features is not does not make the best product it's about solving the best problems and understanding the market the best and sometimes taking risks and not knowing necessarily what it is that you're going to build but knowing that it might take a slightly backwards route to get there and that's how A lot of startups end up taking down some of the huge Goliaths out there. So these big companies are just not set up.
0: That's one of my favorite signals to look out for is when someone asks, well, how many things have you shipped or how many times have they released to production? That's always one of those warning signs that I say that reminds me that there's something is going on here that has probably nothing to do with whether or not someone is shipping to production and how often they're doing that. But there's like a deeper problem because you're right. That doesn't really measure anything. It's just like such a weird, like, well, are you doing anything type of question? So yeah, I love looking out for that.
1: So whenever anybody's stuck in this whole timeline world, I always try to figure out as to, well, how stuck are they? Are you working for one of these companies who's literally like, you know, so wrenched in organizational bureaucracy debt that you cannot move and the company's not set up for it. At which point, that's where you start seeing these companies set up things like the labs division or hackathons or things like that in order to break out of their own sphere and disrupt themselves. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to replicate what the startups are doing because they cannot do it within themselves. And within those spheres, if you can get yourself into there, then you can find ways to disrupt. And there are ways that sometimes within these companies, if they're going through their Here's my air quotes, digital transformation. You might be able to find ways to carve away at that old school way of working, but it's with mixed results and sometimes limited success, depending on the people around you and how you're actually working. But the reality is is that most people aren't as stuck as that, right? Most people aren't necessarily in the biggest of slowest banks and government orgs and stuff like that. More often than not, people are slowing themselves down accidentally. They're penalizing themselves without even realizing it, right? They're acting like a big company because it sort of feels like the right thing to do because that's what the big companies do, but it's actually penalizing themselves like using a timeline format when, in fact, you're actually better off using a non-timeline format, a now, next, later format, or something more freeing, because the timeline format literally forces you to put everything on a timeline, and it forces you to work in a delivery mindset for 100% of all the things you do. Now, some things, if you're maybe 50% delivery and 50% discovery focused, then you only have to put dates on 50% of your stuff. Don't penalize yourself by making 100% of your things delivery focused, right? Step away from that and make room for more delivery. Can you get that to 60-40 or 70-30 by the end of the year? Can you gain back a little bit of room and make yourself that little bit more lean? You'll probably never transform your company to this perfectly lean and nimble company that could pivot on a hairpin by Wednesday, but you probably could gain back a little bit more leanness a little bit more nimbleness by employing the right sorts of tactics and and not penalizing yourself and making it harder on yourself.
0: It's really interesting cuz even even working at a small startup I can feel the or smaller the sort of forces trying to trying to pull you into predictability, trying to pull you into giving those timelines just because it's sometimes I think I wonder if it's because It's so much harder to – and it takes so much more effort, or maybe this is totally wrong, but it feels like it takes so much more effort to communicate why the problems I think we need to solve matter and to paint the picture for the different stakeholders that I have on those problems when it's just faster and easier to say, yeah, we're going to ship this thing by this date. Like that's easy to say, hard to do. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas like – describing, okay, this is the strategy. These are the constraints I'm operating under because of that. And here's some customer research and some market research. Like this is the problem I think we have to solve to like get there. That's already so much more work for me to communicate, even though the execution would be better on that.
1: And the thing is there's beauty in that process and you've got to trust in that process. And the process doesn't have to be that much more complicated and it is quite intuitive and it can be measured as well. If companies start understanding How to measure them and they start accepting these new measures like for example this is where OKRs come in and can be quite beautiful so if somebody wants to be able to put a time on something say okay so the biggest problem we're facing right now let's imagine it's our conversion rate right our conversion rate is very good on getting trials to paid right now we want to get that number up well we're not going to tell you what we're going to deliver And when because we we don't know we'll be the first to admit we're product people we don't know about magicians but what we do know is that this is the most important thing to us so starting today and until the end of the quarter we're going to focus all of our effort on that right all of the experiments we're going to run are going to be focused on getting that number improved and we're going to measure it by looking at this 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 and this these are our key results and our process generally involves and you can see this by looking at our past we tend to run maybe 10 experiments per month or five experiments or three or 30 or whatever is reasonable for said team. And you're going to then crack on and run experiments. You're not measuring how many features you're doing, but you're basically saying, we're going to try to run as many experiments as we can, and however long they take to do. We're going to do them to completion and to quality. And they're all going to be aimed at solving this one problem. And our bet is that by the end of the quarter, that number should have gone up. Now, the thing is that you don't know that that number will have gone up, right? All of your experiments could fail, but chances are some of them will land and that number will go up. Um, Now, the thing is that people love the certainty that you give them when you say, we're going to deliver this thing and that's going to fix this. But you're kind of lying to them because you don't know it's going to fix that, right? When If you're actually telling them, here's the process in which we're going to solve this, and here's the bet we're making, and we can show you with some certainty that last quarter we solved the churn problem to this level, because this is the process we followed there, then that actually gives the execs, the team, the everybody around you, a lot of confidence in the process. And it is a wonderful process if it can be followed. It just takes that little bit more to explain, as you say, <laughs> a little bit more trust in it, because it's not as straightforward as just saying, we'll do this by here, and that'll solve everything. And don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's a good point. And I think I've kind of been talking about this in the podcast in the past, but this the idea that to be a really good and not really at the PM level necessarily, although it's really important there too, but the the further I get in my career, the more being able to tell a succinct but engaging, accurate story that includes all of that is so much more valuable and so much more important because if I can do that effectively, then I can buy the team the room to do those experiments and make sure everyone kind of feels comfortable with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So a few things that I always recommend people do, if they can get away with it, is ask to be measured by something else. Don't be measured by how many story points or features you get done. Try to get measured by how many experiments you run. If you're going to have timelines, don't base them on feature out by this date, because what you're doing at that point is you're setting time and scope. And if you're setting time and scope, then either Scope is got to give, as in you won't finish all the things on time, or quality is going to give, as in you're building in tech debt. So that's a bad idea. But set the timeline based on how long you're going to try to solve a particular problem and just have short, simple experiments that at the end of that quarter or month or six months or however long you spend on that, that goal, you can down tools at the end of that and say, okay, great. How did we do? Did we solve this thing? And move on to solving the next problem, the next big objective if that's uh, where you want to go with it. So I could probably talk about this topic forever,
0: but (laughs) we're running out of time. So the last thing I wanted to ask you was, do you have any good books, podcasts, articles, or anything that you're listening to or reading that you think you would recommend for people who want to get better at this type of process?
1: Yeah, sure. So there is a great book called Product Roadmaps Relaunched, that you can definitely pick up. It's by C. Todd Lombardo and Bruce McCarthy and Evan Ryan. Pick that up on Amazon now. That's all about roadmapping itself and has examples of all different types of roadmaps, including the now, next, later format. I've actually written an article specifically on objection handling that you might run into.
0: Ooh, perfect. I'll put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So when you're trying to ditch timelines, you might run into questions from your boss, your investors, your customers, your sales team, yourself, how to handle those objections and what to say to each one of them. So I'll send that over to you and share that around. And I also have a handy guide, a handy guide for product people, which for a limited time was available as an ebook. It includes things like how to write everything from how to write a product. Vision, how to do OKRs, road mapping essentials, and stuff like that. I can drop you the note for that as well. Or if anybody wants to just email me, I'm jana at prodpad.com. I'll send you a copy. And yeah, you can have a copy of that as well. Awesome. Jenna, thank you
0: so much. I have, I've been scribbling notes in my notebook and I have so many things to think about for myself. So I really, really appreciate you taking some time to take me through this. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Well, really good to get a chance to
1: chat. And uh, like you said, I mean, I could keep talking about this forever as well. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Thanks.